Good morning, church. It's with great joy and a great privilege that we come together now around God's Word. And so let's read together John 20 from verse 19 to 23. John 20, 19 to 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the, the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Let's pray together. Dear God, we thank you for your word in a world where... It is attacked when errancy is attacked. Lord, we uphold together as your church the inerrancy of your word. It's complete and absolute truthfulness and infallibility. And we come together to your word and ask that through it you would equip us again, empower us and embolden us for the mission that you have given to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This week I came across an article that asked this question. Post-pandemic, will China's church be changed forever? So apparently right before lockdown in February 2020, new legislation was passed in the country that would tighten government's control over the church. This legislation said that the, the government should have control over every measure of religious life and quite ominously says that all religious activity must support the Chinese Communist Party. For decades, the church has faced a, a measure of persecution in China. And yet these unofficial churches have, these house churches have been able to operate with at least a measure of freedom, renting public spaces in many quarters, being able to welcome visitors and even been so, somewhat open about their activities without official sanction. This new legislation, or well, the fear is that it could essentially close an era of semi-openness in the country. And so... While many Western churches are asking the question, when are we going to get back to some kind of normal or new normal, it might be different for the Chinese church. They might be headed for greater persecution and having to go even further underground. And yet, nothing really has changed as it has been for decades in this church what we've seen in China is a great courage amongst marginalized Christians. 
the culture has changed a little bit and there's a, a, a new sort of caution and suspicion around any kind of gathering. And yet many even now continue still to invite their neighbors, invite their friends, invite the world around them, not being sure that if somebody comes in that they will not be reported for what they're doing. Some apparently have even invited the authorities in this time. One pastor said the persecuting parties feel like they also are vulnerable. Maybe I could get this virus. Maybe I will die. You are not afraid of death. So maybe something in your faith is quite unique. Though forced behind locked doors, there is great Courage and readiness for whatever opportunity might come. Another pastor said, we know that everything is under his control and he is behind everything. Whatever happens is God's way to prepare his church. He is always preparing his church. And they, they speak of how they are still raising up new leaders, training new preachers. They don't know what opportunity will arise. Maybe the day will come when they can go out into the streets and preach in the stadia, and they want to be ready for that time. Another pastor says, Through uncertainty, we depend on our certain God. God calls us to live an uncertain life so that we can trust and rely on Him. And I've had a, a question growing in, in my own heart, and that is this, what will our church, certainly the church in general in South Africa, but what will HBC look like post-pandemic? Is there enough courage amongst us now that bodes well for our future? Or are we more like the disciples on this first Easter Sunday night, locked behind closed doors and filled with fear? Are we fearful that we might lose our lives? Are we fearful about the future? Are we fearful in these e economic times of the, the loss of our possessions? Are we reluctant to heed the radical call over our lives? Now, if you've come to this place with fears today and with anxieties, you have come to the right place. You're encouraged to bring those cares to cast them upon the Lord. We're called to come together and to encourage one another, to stir one another up to good works through our gathering. So bring what you carry. Lay it at the feet of a loving and faithful Savior. But we have got to leave this place being affected by the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've got to leave here being affected by the truth of this passage. The truth that Jesus has overcome the grave. That he is here in our midst. And that when we go, he goes with us as we leave. The resurrection must produce courage in our hearts. It must reorder our perspective as we go. So that when we go, we can be who we are called to be. And do what we're called to do. Because we trust in Him. Last week in the encounter with Mary Magdalene, we saw through the re resurrection the hope and the belonging that are ours in Jesus Christ. And this week, through the encounter with the disciples, we will 
consider what the resurrection means for us under these three headings. It means peace, purpose, and power. Number one, the resurrection means peace for you and me today. Verse 19 says that it was the first day of the week. It's the day that he had risen, that first Easter Sunday night. And the disciples are gathered, and they're gathered behind locked doors. What must it have been like in that room? It says they they fear. They were fearing the Jews. Jesus is gone. Maybe the authorities will come for us. Maybe they'll pick off his followers one by one. On top of that, we know that their hopes and their dreams have been crushed in the death and the crucifixion of their master. The darkness that had enveloped the heart of Mary on her way to the tomb has descended into their spirits. Already they have begun to speak of Jesus in the past tense. Earlier that day, a disciple had referred to him, saying, we had hoped that he would have been the one to redeem Israel. But what do we do now? What do we do now? Have you ever felt this way? No idea what what to do next. No idea where hope for any kind of positive outcome could possibly come. This is what they are feeling in this moment. Maybe they're still struggling to come to terms with it. I'm sure they were. How? How did this happen? How did we get here? What went wrong? Maybe as they sit and and talk, they begin to reminisce. Remember how excited and hopeful we had been when he walked on water. And Andrew says, yes, remember when that light he brought his lunchbox and Jesus fed 5,000 people with it. Remember how he spoke and captivated people with his words. Remember his compassion, somebody says. Remember how we got into trouble that day when Jesus invited the little children that we were trying to send away? Well, I remember that strange day in Samaria where we went to get food and we came back and we saw him sitting with a Samaritan woman. Remember the ruckus that was caused that day? Yeah, I remember the, the day at the grave of Lazarus. Remember his tears for his friend and yet that Power in his voice. Lazarus, come forth. In their reminiscing, imagine the sadness that would have punctuated their conversation. Probably regret. They're convinced they're never going to see him again. How did this happen? And he died alone. We We all left him. We abandoned him. There was probably more to their fear, disappointment, disappointment in themselves and despair, probably even shame. And it's into this moment of despair and fear and shame that we see once again the Lord appear. And he doesn't have to knock. He doesn't have to open the door. He just came and stood among them in their midst. He's not a ghost. Luke's account labors the fact. Jesus says, look, see my physical body. Here are my scars. He's in his resurrected body. 
Somehow he can appear in their midst behind locked doors, just as he had risen through grave clothes, folding them up in his statement that he's done with death. But what's amazing to me is just the quietness of it all. No thunder, no blinding lights, just Jesus stepping into their need. It was the same for Mary. She mistook him for a gardener, and yet with a word tender on his lips, Mary, she realizes it's him. The same for the disciples on the way to Emmaus, dejected, walking in the wrong direction. He just appears and walks with them and shares a meal with them, and they realize who he was. Well, here he slips in among them in the midst of their fear and their anxiety in the midst of their heartache. Like he does with us. Quietly, in the middle of our fear, when we feel like the world is crushing in or when hope is being squeezed out, when enemies surround us, when Satan's scheming overwhelms us, when all that you can utter is a desperate prayer, Jesus, help me. This is what he does. This is what he does. He does not wait for you to get your act together, to build up your own faith. He comes and he helps us to have faith, to face our fears. And what does he say to them? Is his first word a word of disappointment? He say, I, I told you I was going to rise again. What is your problem? Is it a word of rebuke? You all abandoned me and disowned me. In verse 19 it says, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. It is a familiar greeting in their culture, and yet in this moment, on the lips of Jesus, it means a whole lot more. That's why he says it twice. Verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord, and Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. Peace not rebuke, peace, not shame, peace, not I told you so. A.W. Pink comments on this verse. He says, well, might he have said shame on you, but instead he says, peace be unto you. He would remove from their hearts all fear which his sudden and unannounced appearance might have occasioned. Having put away their sins, he now removed all their fears. What about you? Well, might you and I have stood before him with no hope, no hope in our sins, but for the cross. As we sing so often, where anger burned, he showed us true forgiveness. He bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. All I know is peace. When he was born, the angels announced peace. And now, before the ascension, he reiterates this truth that through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, peace is theirs and peace is ours. A peace first and foremost with God himself. His words to them, peace be with you, are the outflowing of his words, his victory cry on the cross. It is finished. I've done it. The scars are a proof. Yes, they're a proof that the crucified one is also the one who conquered death. He is the risen Lord. 
But they are also a sign forever that the risen Lord, the crucified, the risen Lord is the crucified one. Forever the lamb who was slain to take away sin. And before the disciples are to go anywhere, before they are engaged in any mission, this must be the unshakable foundation of their lives. The peace to calm all fears that through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, I have peace with God himself. There can be no deeper peace than that. No greater comfort than that in any situation. That is the, the peace that enables you when you hear the news. The ship has sunk. Along with it, all four of your daughters enables you to sit in hurting but held together certainty and right when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And in addition to the peace that he has, that we have with God, Jesus offers the disciples the peace of God. It was this peace that he promised on the the night before the crucifixion in John 14, 27, he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. John 16, 33, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He appears in their midst and his message is, peace, you have not lost me. Peace, I'm with you still. Peace, I will not forsake you. Before he commissions, he gives peace. Before they are to go to preach and give testimony in the courts and in the synagogues and in the town halls and on the streets before anything, they need peace. Do you have peace today? Do you have peace with God the Father? Do you have peace, the very peace of God? It is this that enables those who are fearful to obey the command that is given. Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. The Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And if you have peace, then you go as one sent. Secondly, we see in this passage, on the foundation of peace, there is purpose. In verse 21, Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. We know the great commission in Matthew 28. This is John's commission, his version, what Jesus said to them at another time. Jesus is the Word of God from the beginning who left the glory of heaven, who took on flesh and came and dwelt among us in full obedience to the Father, in submission to the Father, Jesus came into the world. This is a great emphasis in the Gospel of John. The Father sends the Son into the world. And so this commission for the disciples and for us is built again. Upon Jesus' prayer for them, you remember in John 17, 18, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. When John talks about being sent into the world, it's a little bit different to the Great Commission, which is equally as important, as important talking about geographical location. 
that you are to go into all the world, into the far reaches, wherever people are, and proclaim the gospel. Teach them. Make disciples. It's the reason that we are very serious as a church about praying for our missionaries and sending our missionaries and funding missionaries. Just by the way, something that makes me very excited and very grateful to be able to be a pastor in this church. Whatever I give to this church, more than 30% of that goes straight out into the mission field. That is incredible to me. And on top of that, there is so much generous earmarked giving for missions. It's why after a difficult financial year in the world, we have actually been able to increase our giving to missionaries. We're planning right now to join in the sending of a new missionary family to Mozambique. And you'll hear about this soon. Well, you'll hear more details about it soon. But in John's Gospels, Gospel, the, the world refers to something else. It refers not to the, the neutral geographical location, but the locus of fallen mankind in rebellion against the holy God. Jesus came into a world that despised him, that rejected the light because they loved the darkness, it says, that mocked him and killed him. But this is the love of God. Jesus was sent into the world. And through his death, John says in 1232, he draws people to himself. This is his mission. The mission is a, a sending out and a drawing in. That's what it is for us as well. Kevin DeYoung uses a, the analogy of you've if you have, a, say, a ball on the end of a string, you know that if you swing that ball, it, it follows a circular pattern. Did you know there's two forces working on that ball in that moment? We, we call them centrifugal force. And Have you ever heard of centripetal force? The opposite force? The centrifugal force is pushing out and the centripetal force is, is pulling in. And that's what our, our mission is as well. We love to be here, but we are sent out into the world. And our life has to have a, a certain flavor to it and a message to it that draws people in, in towards Jesus Christ. We call them out of darkness and into his marvelous light, the light that we have seen. And this comes with certain implications for our lives as we would leave from this place in a few minutes. Whatever you have brought into the church. Whatever you are struggling with, they are real struggles. Whatever your fears or anxieties, having met your, your needs at the, the feet of a loving God, we need to leave with the resurrection doing its work in our hearts. If you are a Christian, if you are a child of God, then when you leave this place, you leave as one sent. You leave sent. As you walk under those doors, it says there you are now entering the mission field. The Lord's mission is your mission. It's not optional. It's not optional for you and me. Our time together is good and it's precious. We meet for edification. We bring our fears and our struggles. We worship together. In reverence, we come together under the word of God. And when we leave, we still are together. 
We bear one another's burdens. We pray for one another during the week. We meet in home groups. It's all good and right, but the church does not exist for itself. Your purpose as a Christian is to be sent into the world. And if you are sent, it means that you go not as your own. You don't belong to yourself, but you belong to Him, and you certainly don't belong to the world. Don't confuse being sent into the world with being comfortable in the world. If there isn't a a radical flavor to your life that comes from this deep understanding at the core of your being that I am holy unto the Lord, I belong to Him. If there isn't that flavor in your life, it means that you might be in the world, but you are not sent. John Piper warns us not to buy into the lie that we sometimes buy into. That if you're too heavenly minded, you'll be of no earthly value in the world. He says, the only people of earthly good are those who are so radically heavenly minded. Their focus is not on this life. They're looking to the life to come. And that changes how they see this life. They're so heavenly minded that they're free from this world. Free from the things that consume the minds of those around us. Free from the desire for more and more possessions. Free to go. And if you go, and if you belong not to yourself and not to the world, but to Him, you ought to expect that that call will come with a cost. Jesus shows them his scars, and they rejoice in the comfort of that. He is alive. That's the point. Hope floods back in. But these scars, while they are a sign of the peace that we have through a dying and a conquering king, they are also a sign to us of what to expect as we follow him, sent in the authority of the Son, and in obedience to him. The scars of Jesus Christ are a call to count the cost. Jesus said, count the cost. He sent them and he's sending us into a world that beat him, that mocked him, that wounded him and killed him. He had said, if you remember in John chapter 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The scars are a promise. They are a promise of trouble and at the same time a promise of victory. That is what we walk in. Trouble on the horizon, but victory in Jesus Christ. Ultimately, we know if God is for us, then who can stand against The scars are a promise, Paul said, or or spoke of in all things, he said, in tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, danger, and sword. We know in all these things that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. They are a promise that the life that is given to Christ and given to his mission, given to the lamb who was slain, cannot end in frustration and ultimately in loss, but every pain that you face and every loss that you face ultimately end in victory, in greater gain. Revelation 12, verse 10 to 11, the promise is made to the church and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. 
For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives, even unto death. Christian, love not this life. Love not this life, but live for another. As you leave here, do you know that you you don't go to your natural habitat? When you go home, you're not going home. You're not going to where you're making your own empire that will be here today but vanish tomorrow. You go as a stranger. You are a stranger in this world, but you are one sent by the Son of God with purpose, compassion, love, and truth. In combination, and you go knowing that you are not alone and you are not without help. Number three, there is power through the resurrection. In verse 22, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. In a deeply Trinitarian book, John points out that the very shape of their mission is Trinitarian. The Father sends the Son, and the Son exhales the Holy Spirit upon them to equip them for mission. Now there is, there is difficulty in understanding this verse. How do we reconcile this with Acts chapter 2? We know in Acts chapter 2, right, where the, the disciples are gathered together with trepidation behind locked doors, but they at least are waiting. They are where they were told to be, waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. He comes, He descends upon them while they're praying. And in power now they preach the gospel and proclaim with boldness the death of Jesus Christ. That was in Acts chapter 2. So how do we account for what's happening here? What is going on here? John Calvin suggests that here Jesus is sort of sprinkling them with the Holy Spirit. Just in an anticipation of a later saturation in the Holy Spirit. I believe a better option, Carson suggests that this is just an acted out parable. There's symbolism in what he's doing that points forward in anticipation to the Holy Spirit that will be poured out. John's own gospel ties together the promise of the Holy Spirit with Christ's return to the Father. John 16 verse 7 Jesus had said to them, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. Whatever is going on here, what's not debatable from this passage is the absolute necessity of the Holy Spirit in your life. The present Spirit of Christ to enable you to do the mission that God is calling you to do. It's why the first command he gives them in Acts chapter 1 is don't leave Jerusalem. Wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit. When you leave from this place, will you go with this awareness? I'm not going into this alone. He will help me. He will help me know what to say. Why would I be fearful in, in these situations? These gospel opportunities when I've got the chance to speak to my friends, to my family who I know are lost. Why would I be afraid? God is in control and He's here with me. Ask. 
Ask for courage. Ask for opportunities. Maybe the reason we don't have them is because we don't ask. Finally, he gives one more promise related to our power for mission in verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. John likes to stack up all the difficult verses together. There's been a lot of confusion around this verse. I think we know that it, means, it doesn't mean that we have the, the literal power to absolve sins. That we don't, we don't, in our own power, forgive sins. Only God the Father, through the finished work of God the Son, can forgive sins. So what, what does John mean here? I believe what he's saying or what he's talking about here is the real power that we have in gospel proclamation. The proclamation of the Word of God. J.C. Ryle says that we see this power on display in the book of Acts. When Peter stands in Acts chapter 3. And the power of the Holy Spirit and preaches saying, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. When Paul preached in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch in Acts chapter 13. He said, To you has the word of salvation been sent. Let it be known to you brothers that through this man through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you today. When the gospel is proclaimed, Ryle says, they were doing what this passage commissioned, opening with authority the door of salvation and inviting with authority all sinners to enter in by it and be saved. John Piper puts it this way. He says, when you tell people about what I have done, speaking my word about my work, and the power of my spirit, I am the one speaking through you. So that if anyone believes your word, I forgive their sins. And if anyone does not believe your words, I don't forgive them. And since you are my voice and my truth, I speak of you forgiving them and you withholding forgiveness. Whatever else, what this means is that whatever else the church is to be engaged with, Whatever else we find ourselves doing in the community and in the world, there is one thing that must remain primary in the church of Jesus Christ, and it's the gospel proclamation. This is the one thing we have to offer. That's it. Our one task is to make this offer. The reality of this truth in Acts 4 verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That must be our message. There is no participation in the mission of God without some point or another. Confronting people with this reality, they must realize, I have sinned against a holy God. What I need from Him is not a tweaking in my life. It's not improvement of my life. Not help for this, that, or the other. Not even answer to my prayers. What I actually need is what I could never do for myself. I need forgiveness. I need peace with God. As we go out, we go out with this knowledge. We are a people of unclean lips. Who live among a people of unclean lips, Isaiah says. Whose eyes have seen the King, the Lord of glory who have felt His forgiveness and known His cleansing. We have been made right and reconciled to God. 
And peace is what we have to offer. This is all we have. If we dodge for fear that we would be found to be politically incorrect, then we don't preach the gospel. If we divert into politics, we may be right, but that's not the gospel. If we take up great social works, that would be good and that would be right, but that is not the gospel. And we are promised here that the one thing that we have to offer comes with the very power of God. Paul says in Romans 1 verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Why do we fear when we have the Holy Spirit with us and we know that God will do the work that He wants to do through the proclamation of the gospel? We know that His word will go out and not return empty. It will accomplish His purpose. Why do we fear? How are you going to leave today? Are you at peace with God? If not, I invite you today, be reconciled to a holy God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you do have peace with Him, And that peace must come with purpose and it comes with power as well. Go out and do not live for yourself. You have been bought with a price. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we we need courage. We need your help. We are so often fearful, so often miss those little opportunities that we have to share the gospel. We are so often a people who cling to our, our possessions and cling to those things that, that comfort and bring convenience and shape our, our lives around those things, around money and, and health and popularity and all the things of the world. And, and so, Lord, we, we repent of that. We repent of the way that we trust in all the wrong things. We repent of our fear and our anxieties. And we ask you to give us courage. God, fill us with your spirit. Help us to know what to say. And give us opportunity, Lord. Let your church be more and more a beacon on a hill. Help us to be the salt and the light of the world. And send us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.